Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucksters? What the fuck wads? It's me, Mark Marin. What's going on? This is my show, WTF. Thank you for listening. I'm glad you're here. Today on the show, Ethan Hawk joins me for a conversation. Ethan is in a a nice little film that I watched and enjoyed called Born to Be Blue. Uh, he actually plays uh, the trumpet player Chet Baker, uh, which is no easy task. Uh, Chet was a at that point during the the movie where the time it takes place. Chet was well into being uh, pretty beat up and pretty strung out, and it, it is sort of a love story. Uh, I would say it is a love story, but it's a little dark, and it's done uh, in a very sort of creative way, moving in and out of uh, a, a, a film that Chet Baker was supposed to be in playing himself. He may have shot some of it and, and real time frame. And it was, he did a good job and Ethan's a good actor. He's a great actor. And he's been, you know, he's been around since like, I feel like he's one of maybe a little, he's a little younger than me, but I I feel like he's one of those guys where you sort of see grow up, you know, and he's done some great work and it was nice to have him in the garage and talk to him. So look forward to that. I mean, literally it's minutes away. Could be quicker for those of you got no patience, had enough of my shit. Let's get right to that Ethan Hawke chit-chat. Let's go over these dates again. I'm going to be at the Mission Creek Festival at the Englert Theater in Iowa City on April 8th. I'm going to be in Lincoln, Nebraska, April 9th at the Rococo Theater. That might be sold out. I'm not sure. Uh, on April 10th, I will be at the Arvest Bank Theater at the Midland in Kansas City, Missouri. That is not sold out. So if you didn't get tickets in Nebraska, maybe you want to drive down. Uh, six hours whatever it is I, I know i'm going to be driving if i can do it you can do it was it four hours but uh either way you can go to wtfpod.com slash calendar you can get to the links you can get the links uh for these shows and uh y- you know I'm, I'm 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 working on new stuff you know that's gonna be a little a mix and match of stuff i'm not gonna go way back but i'll go recent and i'll go new and I'll be I'll be happy to be in the Midwest. I've not played any of these areas before. I appreciate all the feedback for the uh, the reposting of the Shandling Gary Shandling uh, conversation I had in 2011. It is a sad time here in show business, and uh, I'm glad that I had that to give back to you people. Uh, if you had not heard it or you wanted to hear it again, he was a lovely man. And I was actually at the um, the comedy store last night. Uh, before I get to that, the Al Lubell episode. Many of you. You know, I posted the Gary Shandling thing because of the the, the loss of Gary, 
the day after we dropped uh, Al Lou Bell's uh, episode of WTF. You should listen to that one because Al is a veteran comic. He's an interesting guy. He's introspective in a way that um, is not always great. And uh, it, it's sort of a touching story. And I, I recommend that one if you missed it. Now, getting back to uh, to the loss of Gary Shanley, last night I was at the Comedy Store and um, uh, Bob Saget showed up to do a few minutes. And I talked to Bob in the parking lot and he and, he and uh, Gary had gone back to you know 1978 and they met at the Comedy Store and, and and Bob felt compelled to uh, to say something. He needed, for his heart and for his uh, for his friend, he needed to go up on stage to try to say something in that room where they met at the Comedy Store uh, in 1978. And he just wanted to do a guest set. Uh, he seemed a bit beside himself with uh, with grief uh, on some level, and and just with loss uh, and and just a little a little jarred. And uh, it's always it's always good to see Saget. He's a great guy, but he got up there and he he did uh, classic Saget jokes, and it was funny in a way. And it, it, there's no reason for it not to be funny to see him try to transition on a Saturday night, you know, on a 10:30 show, no, no less, uh, in the original room, which you, you know that's a real show where you got to do real shit. And he was doing well. He was killing with his dirty jokes and his bits, but he wanted to say something about Gary that come from his heart. And uh, it was just interesting to see him for about 45 seconds struggling to make that transition and then making it, paying his respects to Gary Shanley in, in the room where they met and, uh, and then telling a couple of his favorite Gary Shanley jokes and then go back to his dirty jokes. So it was like there was this reprieve in the middle of the Saget filth which is, I, you know, I'm not being condescending at all. I, I like his jokes, but you know, he he's notoriously a little dirty. Uh, you know, there's, you, you got your you got your five six minutes of solid, you know, Saget patter, full on filth, and then the the sort of like heart wrenching, uh, uh, short but uh, honest eulogizing of his of his uh, lost friend, and then right back into the dick jokes. So it was good comedy, and it was good. To, it was a, it was a great expression of. Uh, of comedic emotion, that that it became more. It really the idea, the the difficulty of of feeling the need to say something to honor somebody in the in the context that the audience doesn't know. But you know, he obviously set it up well. But it's a comedy show, and and then it, to watch him struggle and then fucking do it, and he got off and he felt good that he did it, and I was happy that he did it, and it was great to see him. It's uh, you know, it's hard. It's it's very hard, you know, as we get older and we start to see our peers passing, some tragically too early, which I would say is true for Gary. Uh, you know, it just becomes very a thing that happens, man. And I know it's easy to say hey, it happens to everybody, but you know, and I'm no old man, but uh, but you know, most of it's behind me now. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. Thank God for comedy. Thank God for the comedy store. It was fun time there on Saturday night. I get to go on stage more, and I, there really is this time after I get done shooting the show, and I think it's the same with anybody who does anything creative or, or just works in general, is that when you want to find time to do the stuff that you, you, you know, you, you're used to doing or the things that, that define you or make you feel the best, it's scary when you haven't done them as thoroughly in a while. Like, I'm like, how the hell am I going to write new material? I got to do another hour. When am I going to 
what the fuck? And then, and then I just start to get back to my life and what my life looks like. It's the, it, it's not great in my head, but that's just who I am, man. You know, I got, you know, I get up and like, I, you know, I, it takes me a long time to, to like, I do a lot of organizing. I do a lot of dishwashing and maybe some cooking before I get, you know, do anything creative or get out here. But all I know is that I was worried about doing stand up, and I just, you know, having been doing it only once a week for months and now I'm back in it and you, you just get your fucking legs back and you just start to push out the new shit. There's, you know, I don't ever think it's going to happen, but it always happens. I mean, for fuck's sake, I've done, you know, five CDs, a few specials. I've got hours and hours of material out there and they it, it, it comes. But before it comes, there's that moment of like, is it ever going to come? And then you just get on, you just have that one fucking night, man. There's just that one night and Friday night. Or maybe it was Thursday night. Was it Thursday night? I think it was Thursday night where these three pieces that I was sort of kind of thinking about together, just all, they, I, actually, I wasn't thinking about them going together at all. And they just wove together naturally. And I realized, well, that's how, that's how I do it. You got to get present, get engaged and, and make it immediate. Like it has to be talked about. And that's usually the way my brain works. Like right now. That's what happens on stage, and that's when the shit starts to happen. And these three things just wove together together beautifully. I talked about a couple of them here, but not not with the beats and figuring out how they live on stage and and how to you know kind of um, you know kind of expand them. And it felt fucking great because, despite whatever I'm known for, or whatever you know me for, or whatever you think of me, or my work, or whatever, you know. I've been a comic a long time and and that's how I identify myself. I'm a comedian. <laughs> and when it works and when there's that portal where you're like, "Oh, I can I can make things funny and do the, you know, another hour, no problem." Cuz you just get that freedom of mind. That's what comes back. Is the freedom of mind, which for me is, you know, you know, wrought with a sort of torment and compulsive need to sort of poetically understand things and uh, get those down on paper and get them out of my mouth on stage to see if people you know see it that way or 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 are excited to see it the way I see it it's just been fun it's been fun it's fun to have a new bit and it's like that's sort of working and it's new and it just makes everything okay do you understand am I making sense I'm coming back to life after you know doing some i mean i was alive before but we had work to do specifically but now i guess i'm coming back to you know what makes my freedom of mind and my creativity uh, exciting okay i went and saw joanna newsom the other night yes i did for those of you who listen to this show regularly or are nerds about it or compulsive about it have listened to everything her husband andy sandberg was on the show and and i didn't know who she was i felt bad and then people were like how can you not know who she is certain people so then I got some of her records from Drag City. Um, they were nice enough to, to to give me a couple. And I listened and I'm like, I, I don't know if I can handle this. It's a little, it's a definitely, I got to sit down and do this Joanna Newsom business. You know, because it's very unique. It's very um, of her own. And, uh, it you know, it requires some mul- multiple listening. Then I, then I think I, it looks like I'm going to talk to her. So, I, you know, I went through, I got her new record. Then I went through all the old records. And then my... My uh, my girlfriend Sarah Kane, the painter, was buddies with Joanna like a decade ago, back in the day in the Bay Area, and they they hadn't really they haven't talked at all really since then. 
So she knew a little about her, and uh, she actually had one of her self-release CDRs that you can't get on iTunes, so I listened to that. So I got all up to speed, and she was here at the Orpheum last night, a couple nights ago, Friday, and I went to see her, and it was like, she's from another planet, man. Some magical shit. That woman is is definitely touched. She had a couple cello players and a piano player and a keyboard player, and her brother was on drums, and they had, she had a guy that played guitar, banjo, bass, and an oud or something, some unique-sounding uh, unique almost renaissance instrument and all of them kind of moved around and played different instruments. She had her giant harp. It was, it was like, and all the, I was like, what kind of audience is here? It felt like some, it felt like a nerd Hobbit movie. You know, when people are, are a little too sensitive to, to really live out in the world, but they can't really show that they all came and, 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 and almost like worship Joanna Newsom. It was pretty stunning. So that was just an experience I had harp, Though not doesn't look like a practical instrument to me. Doesn't look like something you could be just like, uh, hey, can I come over and jam? I got to throw my harp in the car. The thing was as big as a car. But she was uh, just magical. And afterwards, uh, her and uh, Sarah were able to reunite for a few minutes, and that was touching. almost made me cry. You know when you haven't seen somebody in 10 years? It's, it was emotional for me. Anyways, I'm rambling about Joanna Newsom. Eventually, she will be on the show. We will do that. Okay, all right, Ethan Hawke, and again, his film, Born to be Blue, uh, where he plays uh, Chet Baker, is now playing in select theaters. This is me and Ethan. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. So I watched um, the Chet Baker movie. Good job, buddy. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> that couldn't have been easy. No, it was not easy. <laughs> it was not easy. It, it's funny. Um, I don't remember the day that I agreed to do it. Do you, you know, like, I can't, like, how the hell did I ever agree to sing my funny Valentine on camera? Like, I, right. I don't know what possessed me. What, and to uh, do it like him. Anyway, it's just one of those strange things. That yeah. It slowly happened to me, I feel like. Well, I mean, whose project was it? Because it's, uh, it's um, you know, he was a, a pretty, like, I think he was a glamorous character. But by the time, like, in, in terms of, like, you know, he was smooth and sexy and handsome and all that. But by the time you pick up your story of him, he's pretty beat up. All those days are going, yeah. Yeah, it's like, you know, he's got no fucking teeth. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> did you watch uh, that documentary? To of get... course. Yeah. 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 Well, that documentary, Bruce Weber um, made Let's Get Lost the year I graduated high school. And in a lot of ways, that movie 
was my first introduction not only to Chet Baker, but I really didn't know jazz. anything about jazz at all. Right. And and Chet, in a lot of ways, is a good entry point. He's yeah. very accessible. Right. And, and like Nina Simone or some, it's easy yeah. easy to enjoy. You don't have to have a sophisticated ear like you right. do with right Coltrane or right. Charlie Parker or Miles Davis. Right. Or, and so, um, you know, my my relationship is actually kind of strange because Richard Linkletter and I. I'll tell you the truth. The truth is, I was here in L.A. Yeah. one time, and Brad Pitt apparently dropped out of some Chet Baker project. This right. is about 15, 16 years ago. And uh, and this producer calls me up and says, hey, would you be in a Chet Baker biopic? And I, I was like, let me think about that. And I called up Linkletter, and Linkletter and I went down the rabbit hole about, I mean, he was his brain was so interesting thinking about Chet and really? jazz. And, yeah, because Rick had this great immediate hit on chet baker what was interesting about him and yeah. what was interesting about him is this detachment and that that's like what is cool chet baker is cool what <laughs> is cool cool is detachment and detachment has a positive manifestation and a negative manifestation yeah and like rick was like yeah let's make a movie about detachment let's make a movie about cool it'll be like pull my daisy and we'll set it in the 50s and it was awesome we got we got all jacked up about this movie and we got a script together and we were trying to raise money and it just slowly fell apart and never happened and we never got to make the movie and it left me with this uh strange disappointment because i had really worked hard on it and i thought worked hard on the research and and thinking about chet research makes it sound like i went to the library and but no but just getting into it in my imagination you know it's the kind of thing i thought about for a couple years all the time you're driving on it you're just thinking about i'm listening to music music. everything is an excuse to think about how i might want to inhabit that world and then it just went away it was really funny. The The script we'd come up with was an idea that um, uh, a day in the life of Chet Baker, the day before he tries heroin. Oh, right? really? That was yeah. the idea. And finally, one day I was at Rick's house and, and uh, I started asking him questions. Well, maybe we should go to New Line or maybe they'll give us some money. And, yeah. and Rick's like, how old are you, pal? I was like, oh, no. You think I'm too old for this part? He's like, too old for the script we'd written oh it taken us too long and i oh, got right. i got too old right well okay so that's the point then 10 15 years go by and uh i get another script and i open it up and it's you know it's called born to be blue and then here's chet baker again right only he's in his 40s yeah toothless yeah. and screwed up and yeah. lost and i i felt like this part was kind of chasing me down a little bit and i almost also felt like i was reading the sequel to a movie I didn't make. Right. You, you know? Right, we'd started and, this. Yeah, 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 and I felt kind of compelled to make it. And I met this filmmaker, Robert Boudreau, who who had written the script, and he was, it was clear to me that he was a little obsessed with this topic. He'd made a short film about Chet. He'd had m- several different versions of the script, and he started giving me different versions of the script, and I was able to, to read all these different uh, ideas that he, he had. wanted you to be part of the collaborative process. Yeah, which is re- if, nice. you're gonna, if you're going to go yeah. down the rabbit hole with the really scary part, right? You want to be you don't want to be dictated to about how it's supposed to go. You want yeah. somebody who's going to understand where you're coming yeah. from. And I had you know Philip Seymour Hoffman had just died, mm. and um, we guys was, close. Um, he was a real hero of mine. You know, right? I mean, there aren't that we worked together on before the devil knows you're dead. Yeah, and. We met when I first moved to New York. He Phil was the guy when you'd go audition for a movie. He was always the reader. He was so. What do you mean he was the reader? Oh, like uh, my screen test for um, 
scent of a woman. Right. You know? Oh, right? really? You know, so Pacino's not there for your audition. They hire some actor to read the lines. And here it's Phil Seymour Hoffman, right? They, he, that was his job? That was his job, yeah. And he did the, he'd work for the casting agent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and, and he was so serious, this guy. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and, and he, he wanted, I had a little theater company and he wanted me to do um, one of his plays. And I said no. And, and, because I had my hands full of my own things. I'll start my own theater company. Right. What was that Which, called? I think I remember that. Well, his theater, Your com- theater company was called Malapart. Right. And that's um, and then Phil started his own. But anyway, we were friends for a long time. Then we did Before the Devil Knows You're Dead together. And he was, if you care about the New York theater scene yeah. and you care about movies, yeah. there's actually only a handful of people. I mean, he's a real, he was a real pillar of that community. Yeah. And he had just passed. And so- Sad. The notion of what drives really talented and successful people um, to do such self-destructive pain management, yeah. to, you know, was really interesting to me. What would you come up with? I mean, not not. I saw the performance, but you know, intellectually, you know, what what do you think was the weight of it? Because I, I think some people who are either blessed or cursed with talent are more sensitive than others and can't handle life as as well as others, but. Where'd you come on? You know, where do you fall into th- that spectrum? You don't seem like a a guy that would lose himself like that necessarily. I, that's a big question sure. because uh, I know that I've had a lot of people in my family who've dealt with real issues of depression, right? Um, and you know, from bipolar to schizophrenia yeah. to real serious issues. And I I have often felt I remember thinking that sometimes the most beautiful and sensitive people that I've ever met. Mm -hmm. Um, My stepfather was really touched with grace in a lot of ways. He was, he is a very, he's one of those people. I almost, when I was a kid, I felt this way that um, maybe nature puts magical people every thousand people or something, (laughs) but they're a little too sensitive for daily life. Right. Right. They're, they're, they're put there for special occasions. Yeah. When when there's real need, because yeah. he's a poet, yeah, you know, and, and Phil was a poet, and I think Chet Baker, in a way, in his own, his horn, he was a poet, this yeah. really really right. sensitive soul, yeah, um, and they right. can't navigate the waters, you know, they don't have the right sense of humor about certain things. They're, They're very just, earnest usually, yeah, and uh, I think my end up my hit on Chet is his is that I think what he really, really wanted was a, a jazz life, and mm-hmm. he had an ethos that was a little bit different. I don't think he really wanted to fit into society the way everybody else w- wants sure. you to. And and what he really, really coveted was a life playing music, and that was... Getting pl- lost in the music. There's that great scene in the dressing room with you and the uh, the manager, mm-hmm. you know, where you're, you're, you're making that decision. You know, and it's it's kind of a... What I love about the film is it it hits it it drives to a central point, which is where you can have a professional triumph and at the same time as immense personal failure. Yeah, people often think that somehow people they see are successful, or whatever. That somehow they're succeeding as a person. Mm-hmm. And I made this documentary about Seymour, and it's about this eighty-eight-year-old pianist. It's yeah. called Seymour: An Introduction. And one of the things that Seymour talks about in a life in the arts is that if your art isn't 
integrated into your development as a person, right. then it's actually going to throw your whole life out of balance. And whether you succeed or not, you may succeed. You know, Glenn Gould being an example, uh, Jackson Pollock, Marlon yeah, Brand, yeah, you know, yeah. all these different people right. where, where they're letting their art and their neuroses drive their life. Yeah. Because what's most important to them is their art, but they don't realize that if you succeed at it and lose yourself, mm-hmm. that is, you know, is it really success? And, and, and that to me is an interesting question. Yeah, well, that but in that uh, in that equation is losing yourself actually becoming a transcendent artist, and is it worth that risk? Is that what you're saying, or is it losing? Well, I don't know the answer to it, but I know right. What, I know what, what you're saying. Is it I'm, worth the risk? Like if you sat, like if you look at someone like Chet Baker, like because that's a question you have at the end of that movie. It's like, all right, well, he did some of his best work after that, mm-hmm. and you know, he committed to a life of jazz and drugs. But in retrospect, uh, is he a sympathetic figure, or do we look at him as like, uh, you know, just a, a sort of tormented genius who gave us this great gift? It's weird. You look at it as a person and as appreciator, it's a different thing. It's a different thing. If you look at it as a jazz fan, it's one thing. If you look at it as his son, right? You know, his daughter. What happened at, to that kid? Did you? Did well, he's he he has several children and and a couple ex wives and yeah. And I imagine that there's some hurt there. Of course. And then like in that great thing in the movie, see, that's the other thing about sensitive people. And I think that you actually possess some of this, not in a destructive way that I can tell in watching your work, but, you know, that relationship with his father, you know, where, where, you know, it's sort of the key into why he's like that, you know, why the love deficiency can never be met. Like psychologically, it's sort of answered there, right? But, uh, But it doesn't... It doesn't necessarily because there's two ways to look at that shit. If you're not an artist, you go to therapy and you try to figure out. You know, you go go to Tony <laughs> Robbins or whatever to try to get your shit together. But if yeah. you're fortunate enough to have talent, you can drag everyone else through your struggle. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, you, uh, yeah, absolutely. Come through my pathos with exactly. me. You know, but like I noticed that about you. That was the one thing that was uh, you, you know when I watched um, what I watched. Well, I watched Boyhood recently, and I watched. Uh, I always watch Training Day when it's on because I, I love that fucking movie, is that somehow or another, whatever you've had your entire career, which is a, an access to vulnerability that you can bring to even the roughest roles, is sort of a, a, an amazing thing. Do you feel that? I mean, like, because that role... That, in Boyhood, you know, I'm, we can come back to Chet Baker, that, you know, that was a, a very human and very, you know, sort of, you know, a, 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 a painful guy to play in how that, you, you know, he had to mature, you know, later than he should. And that, you know, when it comes full circle and, and you're sort of a stand-up guy at the end, that was pretty sweet stuff. It's very heartbreaking. Well, everybody likes to think this idea that we're like born done, you know, that we're somehow, <laughs> that, or, or that we even ever really arrive yeah, yeah. anywhere. You know, I mean, what was interesting to me about Boyhood is I, I felt like I was being offered um, a job that no actor had been offered before is to get to create a character, right? There was really no script. Rick yeah. was asking me to create a portrait of fatherhood and use time as clay, mm-hmm. right? You're mm-hmm. gonna get to use, you won't have to act all this stuff. Yeah. And I had this vision when he was talking to me about it in my brain of, Initially. Initially, I'm talking yeah. about 15 years ago yeah. when we're sitting in a cafe, my son was just born, he's telling me about this idea that he wants to make this movie yeah. and take 12 years to do it. And I was like, well, I really pictured my father in my first memories, you know, like around the time the movie starts, six years old, first grade. What does your father look like in those memories to you? And for me, I have a very specific image of him and that is 
very different than the image I have of the man who was at my high school graduation. And when I try to look at those two, I, I realized that he was growing up as much as I was. Right. And that became kind of Rick and I's journey with my character as part of that movie and what 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 we were do- doing with this. And this point that we're not finished. Uh, well, your parents were young, weren't they? My mom was you know, 17. My father was 19. That's was, crazy. I know. Can you imagine having kids at that age? <laughs> My, my. I got a 17-year-old daughter right now, and I t- she um, I hope she wouldn't mind me saying this, but she really wanted a puppy this year, and I, I knew it was a bad idea, but I, my mother said this funny thing. She said, oh, Ethan, let her get that puppy. It, it's, 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 it'll, it's the big... If I just had a puppy, I don't think I would have had you. Yeah. I, just, I needed something to take care of. <laughs> and so I was like... I was like I had the idea Sold! That, yeah, I got that puppy, man. <laughs> So, but where did you grow up? Well, let's see. I was born in Austin, Texas. Um, really? Yeah. So you're Texan. Well, yes. My my father still lives there, and um, but I really grew up in high school, traveling around with my mom. And my mom, we moved to Atlanta, we moved to Brooklyn, we moved to Connecticut. Was she we looking for to, work? Yeah. Well, she was obviously clearly a young woman, right? I mean, right. when 18, I was 19, when, when yeah. did they get divorced? When how old were you? Uh, I, I was around three. So oh, so she was like 21. Yeah, 21. exactly. Uh, what? So she's just a kid. Yeah, exactly. She's still in college. Oh, my know? God. And um, so, but yeah, I grew up with her. She was, as she kind of was finding herself trying on different jobs. And yeah. we went, she was a waitress at Stratton Mountain Valley Lodge for a year. And for a year, I was like the greatest third grade skier you ever met. And then we left there and right. we went to Atlanta. And then Atlanta, I was, you know. And it was the, just you and her? Yep. Wow. So you were a buddy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's weird, those relationships where you, you sort of got to stand in. You, you know what I mean? Like, I because I, my mom was, what, 22 when she had me and my dad was never around. So you get this weird, I imagine, extra emotional pressure to deal with the with the mom. <laughs> you really do. I mean, <laughs> many a novel has been written about I guess it. So. You know? But uh, so how'd you end up in New York? Well, let's see. How I ended up in New York was that I was when I was graduating high school, I really was pretty sure I wanted to be an actor or sometimes I wanted to be Jack London. I really wanted to be out in the uh, writing about the wild. Yeah, I wanted I don't wanted to be a merchant marine and have adventures oh, right. yeah, and, yeah. and and write about them and uh and so I went to Carnegie Mellon for a hot minute to study acting and that didn't go very well. I was mm-hmm. pretty unhappy there. And I heard about Why this- what happened? just didn't didn't you didn't like the system you know what happened is for me mm-hmm. is college is a, too much like high school yeah i had this feeling when i finished high school that i was ready to be an adult and i wanted to have like adult experiences and and i was just a freshman again yeah and i felt like i was just yeah i signed up on a dotted line i was supposed to be here then yeah. and there and i just uh and you know there was just the culture of everybody just drinking and um not that I don't like drinking, but it just was just this haze of stupidity. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I wasn't that interested. And I heard about these auditions for Dead Poets Society, this movie. I mean, that, your mom was living in New York at the time? Or no, no, my mom was living in Princeton, New Jersey. Oh, she Jersey? Was, well, actually, she was teaching school in Trenton at the time. In Trenton, yeah. Yeah. My mom is a real kind of radical Eleanor Roosevelt type. She lives oh, yeah. in Bucharest, Romania now, working for Gypsy Rights. And, really? Yeah. She's really a bizarre person. <laughs> did she uh, remarry? Oh, she did remarry because uh-huh. you said your stepdad. Did she yeah. stay with that guy? 
No. Oh. Yeah, yeah. She she's been she's split from him and has a new I have a new stepdad. Oh, now. good. Okay. She has she has her yeah. she has her eccentricities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the rotating stepdad. Yeah. But that sec that sec that first stepdad he was the poety kind of sensitive yeah. guy. Yeah. Yeah. Do you still have a relationship with that guy? I sure do. Yeah. I, yeah, because I I don't my parents stayed together till I was like thirty five and then they bailed. But uh, so I don't have these relationships with stepdads. This is interesting to me. Cause you, and you have a relationship with your real dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, well, you only have one father, right? right yeah, you know, yeah. there's there's only one that brings you into the universe, right, so to speak. Right, and, yeah. But you have a lot of um, guardian angels. You know, Absolutely. You have a lot of mentors. And, and for me, you know, often, you know, like people will either say it as a positive or they'll say it as a negative that I have tried a lot of different things in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, I've written books mm -hmm. and I've, you know, acted in plays and directed movies and yeah. done a documentary and tried mm -hmm. journalism and I've tried all. And part of that comes from my stepfather who had, he just didn't see any difference in the arts. He mm -hmm. really saw the whole thing like a big fist. And, right. You know, like acting is one finger and music is another finger and painting is one and sculpture is another. And they're all about this need to communicate with each other. With a fist. I like the fist metaphor. Yeah, it There's is. There's a certain yeah. fuck you to it. Yeah, it's, got, it's like the Hunter S. Thompson six-finger <laughs> yeah, yeah. fist, you know, right to your solar plexus. Yeah. But, in, 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 um, you know, my stepfather had that, exactly what you're talking about. And... Um, which is what I mean is a certain fuck you factor to it, which yeah. is that, you know, society, there's a lot wrong. Yeah, there's a lot sure. of games people play and there's yeah. a lot of lies and there's an obsession with money. And there's, uh, and he kind of very beautifully would see through that. But he, when I talk about sensitive, I'm not kidding. Like I was, it was the late 80s, right? When I'm graduating high school and he's the type of person that, um, you know, that we used, you'd see all the starving children in Ethiopia. Yeah. Right? On TV, yeah. And they'd people feel bad or turn off the TV or they'd send in $30 or something. Well, he flew to Addis Ababa. <laughs> yeah. Right? That's what he did. He's like, I can't turn off this TV anymore. I can't be this person. Yeah. I'm just going to go there. And this is the guy that I was growing up with in the house. And he was a really eccentric person, which is, I mean, by that he taught me to play football and he taught me sports, but he also taught me um, a real love of the arts. That's an amazing thing. And, and he, I mean, and, but that's the thing is no difference. Music, acting, writing, poetry. I remember I was writing a, uh, this girl, I had this crush on this girl senior year, I was graduating, yeah. and I, I wrote her this uh, little kind of love postcard thing yeah. that I'd left out on the thing. And he, and he said to me once, he said, this poem stinks. <laughs> I said, he said, you've only got a few moments in your life to yeah. be 18. Right. And you got to write a better poem than this. <laughs> He's like, you know, the, he's like, give her something good. Write about her. Yeah. Don't write about yourself. Yeah. You know, talk about her. Yeah. Why is this poem to her and no one else? Right. You know, I was like, Fuck, that's a good idea. Did you do it? Oh, and it worked like gangbusters, <laughs> man. <laughs> but that's sweet. You're right about that, especially when I think that you, if your your parents separate when you're younger, there's almost a craving. Like my dad was fairly absent, but there's a craving for that guidance. And you're fortunate, you know, that you had another guy that, you know, came into your life that, I mean, because that sounds like it changed your whole way of thinking. It did. And then, you know, you get to be an... I'm raising two kids, you know, my two oldest are, you know, I'm split from their mother. And yeah. so I'm, I'm looking at this from both angles. And I, I really feel like I was able, my, my real father is a very different man and has a lot to offer too. What's his trip? Um, he's a uh, mathematician. And really? Yeah. He's spent his life as an actuary and um, just really uh, deeply kind, deeply humble person. Organized? 
Incredibly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, well, it's the opposite. And he's got this, Emotionally yeah. from and your so stepdad. He, and so he's had to deal with this artist's son, yeah. which I'm sure has been challenging for him, but he would never let on that it right. was. He's right. just very, um, uh, a person of a, a deep and substantive faith uh-huh. and that guides his life. And he's really fun to be around because of it. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's, got, and, he's grounded. Yeah. Very deeply grounded yeah. in that way. And what is interesting for me is I've been able to pull from these different role models yeah, yeah. you know what i mean I, yeah. and and uh mm-hmm. and that's what i hope that my kids can do too how are they know? doing i don't know the, when you're a certain age it's a time to judge your parents by what they're not yeah i'm at the i'm at the non-judgmental phase of parenting because i'm being judged right right, <laughs> right. All of a sudden, by the older like, ones yeah yeah yeah, yeah i've yeah, got yeah. one graduating high school and yeah you know and i've got one who's about to be a freshman in high school so you're taking the hit they yeah they're, they're taking the hit man. <laughs> Dad is a phony. <laughs> It'll pass. It'll come yeah, back around. Yeah, yeah. Do you get along with her, your ex-wife? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Please, please move on. <laughs> yes, I do. Oh, good. But also, I imagine that given that you started acting, because now we can come back around. So you leave Carnegie Mellon. You find oh, yeah. out there's an advertise. Uh, you, you, they're casting for Dead Poets. You hadn't done anything before Dead Poets, really. I had. I'd, I'd done some child acting. and did this movie called The Explorers when I was thirteen. Yeah, uh-huh. and your mom was into it. She was cool with the. She acting. was not into it. She was really busy, uh-huh. and she just appreciated me being busy. Who took you into the city for auditions? I, myself. You took the bus. I took the train. Oh yeah, yeah. When I you took... were thirteen, fourteen. Uh-huh. Remember, uh-huh. you could do that. I know. And it's a little crazy. My, my mother told me as long as it didn't cost her any money, she wasn't going to pay for headshots or pay right. an agent or anything like that. But if I wanted to go on some open calls, I could. Yeah. And I had this friend of mine who lived down the street who had an agent, and so I'd hop the train. I'd hear about you know. Yeah. I'd hop the train with him and go on these casting calls, and one of them was for the Explorers. Uh huh. And you know, it it's we were kind of touching on um, Phil. But, you know, that's where I worked with River Phoenix. Um, and In the it, Explorers? In the Explorers and got to know him. And this, I think when this script arrived on my desk, arriving right after Phil had died, it was hard for me to think about Phil without also thinking about River. And right. River was my first relationship to acting. Uh, we were learning about acting together. And you're both about the same age, huh? We were, yeah, we were 14 when we made that movie. Wow. And... um and uh, but so that had been a little glimpse of my life, like a tiny chapter that I'd almost forgotten about when yeah. I graduated high school. Mm-hmm. And it would just been this weird, you know, strange like summer camp experience yeah. that was different than the rest of my life. And then when um, I went and auditioned for Dead Poets Society, and I got the part. And that just kind of led me on the path where I find you today. Yeah. Well, that, well, that that's the other interesting thing is that you know having these you know these different role models as men in your life and your mother who you know you had uh, you know you were sort of um, I imagine that if the relationship with your mother is like you had to be aware pretty early that you know she was busy dealing with her own shit and you know at least she gave you the opinion to or the uh, option to do what you wanted as long mm-hmm. as you didn't get in trouble i imagine my, my mother placed a great value on independence yeah it was really like uh she had a lot of respect for me if i just took care of myself right. she appreciated that yeah and you know if i just I mean, my, my <laughs> be mother's, a good kid be a good kid she <laughs> give me i kid shit you not uh for christmas you yeah. know she she loved to give me she, i would the tree would be lined with presents right? yeah yeah and and you get under there they're all library books oh really <laughs> stay home and read kid yeah and i had to return them 
<laughs> really? That was yeah, your big that, test? That was, that was, she would always, she'd get me, she'd go to the library and get hilarious. like 15 books and yeah. wrap them and put them under and, you know, I'd have a month. Yeah. And did you read them or did you just take <laughs> some, them back? Yeah. Some of them. So after Dead Poets, well, that I guess that was the question is that now you're in this position to be having an experience with different types of role models like uh, who you're acting with. So mm -hmm. I, I imagine, when did you start realizing like that, you know, you could learn from the people you were working with or did you? Do you know what I mean? Because you're working with Robin, you're working with that whole cast of kids that you know, are your age in that movie. Was it more of a feeling of like, I'm just doing my job? Or did you have moments where you're like, holy shit, that's Robin Williams and he's doing this thing? For me, it felt like um, Peter Weir was yeah. the director of Dead Poets Society. Brilliant guy. Brilliant yeah. guy. Okay, yeah. so he's he's made, you know, Year of Living Dangerously, which was one of my favorite films. Picnic Hanging, Hanging Rock, Rock. Yeah, yeah. Which is incredible. Yeah. He made Witness. Oh, that's um, what a great movie that is. Uh, he made The Last Wave, right? He's, yeah, yeah. This is a major... And when I was in the room with him, it was the, my first experience with what it was like to be with somebody who was an adult artist. Yeah. And he was living his life in service of something larger than himself. Yeah. He was dedicated to telling stories and making movies and bringing out the best in others. This is a major heavyweight human being. Yeah. And I felt like I was meeting, you know, I, I'd studied Sam Shepard and I'd studied, you know, I'd read At Tolstoy. Age, right, yeah. yeah, that's the kind of stuff I was reading, right? And, right. and I felt like I was meeting an artist. Right, like right. An actual, like I'd, I'd heard about them in books yeah. and I'd read about them in the newspaper. Right. And this was a damn artist. Right. Here he was. Yeah, yeah. And, Real deal. And he was, we were staying at the Ramada Inn in Wilmington, Delaware, and he gave all of us kids, I mean, this is the start of my artistic life, is, yeah. is that he gave us a challenge where you had to write your character's biography, which I've later come to find out that this is a very common acting exercise, but yeah. I'd never been in that acting right. class proper. Sure. And he said, you know, write your character biography. You know, so I had to write like, okay, well, I was born in this town and this is my favorite color and this is what, and you start collecting a subconscious that is a little bit different than your own. That's the right. idea. Yeah, yeah. And he would say things like to Robert Sean Leonard, who was playing my roommate, he's like, okay, I need to believe that you two are friends. He'd say to us. So I want to put a scene in the script that is going to be about your friendship. And he showed us the, uh, the schedule. And on Wednesday, the October 17th, we're going to shoot this scene. We're going to shoot it for four hours here in the yeah. state. And you are going to write it. Yeah. He said, you, you two are going to take, I need uh, three two-page scenes about friendship, yeah. about you two becoming friends, and I will film it on this day. I'm going to pick one of them, and you guys write it. And so, Bob, we're, we're 17, 18 years old, right? Yeah, and yeah. like this is a, the heavyweight human being saying he's going to film a scene we're writing. Yeah. So we stay up all night. We're working <laughs> on what could it be, what could it be. Finally, Overthinking it. Oh, overthinking it. We hand him in these you know, three different two-page scenes. And he looks at him and he goes, okay, I like this one best. We'll shoot that one. And he goes on the schedule and there it is, scene 52, part B or yeah, whatever yeah. the hell it is. And he films this scene. <laughs> and here's the funny thing. It's not in the movie. Yeah. He completely cut it yeah, out, yeah. right? Right. But we became friends. Right. It was in what I learned was a process that was going to become invaluable to me working with Richard Linkletter. Mm -hmm. Richard, people think um, when you get on a Linkletter movie that, oh, rehearsal is like, play practice like it is in seventh grade or something right, right. do you know and play practice with richard is something deeper and more mysterious than that which is kind of joining imaginative forces that the most important thing that really happens in rehearsal yeah. is not that i plan to say this line when i put the coffee down on there 
it's that we're actually making the same movie and that we have this we start a collective consciousness yeah so that the same symbols mean the same things to me that we're on the same as they do to yeah, you yeah what I, when i make a joke you laugh because right. we know what each other are talking about right right and then everything becomes easy it's classic teamwork stuff yeah, i mean yeah. you, you learn this in baseball and sure. football and you know teams that achieve on a high level you have to have a serious nonverbal communication right and what peter weir was teaching me first of all he's teaching me how to write by giving yeah. me these biography lessons and uh, and he was teaching me how to what a what a cinema experience can be because people love this idea that there's improvisation yeah i've never improvised well when the cameras were rolling right but i can improvise really well in rehearsal yeah and then i can rewrite it and restructure it so that the movie has the feel of spontaneity sure you know that when you know the bits that come out of improvisation you're like i'm gonna hold on to that exactly right you know which which ones to get rid of well before i forget quick question yeah like there were some weird things in the little moments in the new movie in uh born to be blue that that I thought were great details. Like, uh, was you walking off with the plant? Was that in the script? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but you know, I read this thing. What I love. I was what I was doing. I was staying up all. What I was so fun about studying a really interesting person like Chet is like I could stay up all night reading weird books sure. and weird. And one of his friends is talking about one. Of, he was. Um, you know, like a, a lot of junkies, he was just always on the prowl. Hustle, on the yeah, He's yeah. just hustling. He yeah. tried to leave every exchange with the positive. Right. <laughs> so I thought this guy in the, in the scene, I'm asking a guy for a favor and he turns me down right. so I steal his plant. And then the, the line after that is genius where, where like, because like some parts of the movie with the romance, it's it, it gets a little kind of like um, romantic, you know, but the stuff like, you know, with the junkie stuff, and, and that's not a negative thing. But like I felt that some of the the details around what you did with the character was kind of interesting because then the manager guy goes, "Is she really pregnant?" And you go, "No," and he goes, "Well, that's a start." Yeah, like it's honesty. Yeah, on yeah, some yeah, level, yeah, yeah. I, I like those. And see that that's interesting. That moment you just picked that was an improvisation that then we scripted and shot because we were joking around doing the scene, and I would like in the rehearsals I was stealing the plant. Yeah, and then he ran and chased that. This guy Callum is a great actor. This Canadian guy yeah. Callum Keith Rennie, he's great, and he he started busting. My my balls and, right. we, and we found a, a real moment right and that's right. what you're always hunting for is a real moment where it doesn't feel scripted that's weird i felt what, that yeah and what you're talking about is i know what you mean when the movie gets into the more straight up romance yeah part, in a lot of ways they could be anybody sure because men and women fall sure. in love or men and women falling in love yeah. and the one guy asking a girl to marry him is you know there's certain right losing it's what i love about link letters boyhood is he doesn't do any of those moments right no you, you no. know he just avoids any yeah. first kiss gone for yeah. losing virginity gone it's all the same folks yeah, yeah. we all know what that is yeah yeah well, yeah, well, the, but those still the, the 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 commitment to the character, like you know, once when Chet loses his shit, and you realize how fucking painfully insecure he is, and that you know the whole struggle to get to figure out how to learn the horn again, you know, after he got his teeth knocked out, that just the uh, the depth of his insecurity and his own self annihilation and how they were uh, sort of hand in hand was Damn good. It. And see, I've spent my life around people like that, you know, <laughs> I mean, actors, <laughs> actors, musicians, yeah, um, yeah. people who are so passionate and then quickly turn yeah. you know they they turn on you um and i've just i've seen that over and over well, yeah again. because we are looking for love and you know whether or not you can accept it or not that's you know that's your a whole journey. other yeah, yeah that's your you know plan. what i mean yeah. but but most most performers they want it yeah whether, whether they can handle it when they get it that's right but they do yeah, want it that's my life but let's like the the relationship with Linklater. why do you think because like not unlike 
uh, you know, Scorsese and De Niro and stuff, you seem to be his guy, you know, in in, in a lot of movies. Like, he, he likes working with you. And, yeah, we and, made eight films together. I mean, that's yeah. a lot of movies. Yeah. So how did that, that begin, and wh- why do you think you have this um, this symbiosis with him? Um, it's a little bit like any friendship or something. You, if you ask too many questions about it, yeah, you, right, d- sure. it kind of dissolves in your hands. You think there's a uh, Texan connection? Do you think that there... He's... Uh, yes, yeah. I do. I think that... Um, but for whatever reason, um, there was a like-minded sensibility. I mean, mm-hmm. we were very different people. I think that... Um, you know, I, I really don't know. The, I, I, I ask myself the same question. I know that I'm extremely... I feel fortunate because uh, it's a cool thing when you're young. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing I could wish for my kids more than to meet people of their generation that turn their brain on fire. And I remember Rick, uh, I had this theater company it was this, with this playwright, Jonathan Mark Sherman, we were doing one of his plays. And Anthony Rapp was this guy who was in Dazed and Confused. Now, Slacker had come out, but Dazed and Confused hadn't come out. And Rick came to our theater company to see this play, to see Anthony Rapp in it. Yeah. And we were all really young. You know, um, it's right around the day Slacker came out and then Reality Bites came out. And so it was kind of interesting for us to meet because he was like the Gen X director. Right. And I was like the poster boy of Gen X. Right. And so when we, we shook hands, it was like, God, I guess we're supposed to meet. Huh? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Does Gen X mean anything to you? Absolutely not. Does it mean anything to you? I don't even know what it means. You know, <laughs> I didn't even read that book and, yeah, yeah. and I didn't even know it was based on a book. What yeah. do you mean? And, uh, and so anyway, we went out, um, we went out and hung out all night one night during that whole play. And I did have the feeling that I've had you know, with certain women in my life yeah. and certain friends. You know, when you meet someone, you're like, oh, I'm going to know this person yeah, yeah. for a long time. And right. You kind of... You just, just click. There's an understanding. You just click and you Unspoken. just feel it. yeah. And I remember the rap party for Before Sunrise, the first film we did together. Yeah. We're in Vienna and World Cup had been on. It was summer. It was gorgeous. And I remember knowing when I left that rap party that I was... I wasn't done working with that person. Sure. You know, that we were just starting. Yeah. Um, And... uh I don't know why that is. And I don't know, you know, there might be a time when, you know, he and I don't work together for a while. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know what that'll be like. But I know that the, um, I know the friendship is, has been mutually beneficial. Well, I think, yeah, well, no, but I think he, uh, I think he gets you clearly. And he's a, it's, it struck me, you know, after I talked to him for like an hour and a half or so, they, he's a pretty, you know, straight shooter guy and a very earnest guy. And, in, you know, and he has a certain courage around how he wants to do things. And he, he's, he doesn't seem, he's a very no bullshit person. And it just seems like he's sort of tapped into your, you know, outside of your friendship, to your capacity to, to be open and vulnerable as a man you know, on screen, because a lot of those roles require that. Mm-hmm. And I think he's he's sort of like that. And it's not really uh, the, the standard way of approaching, you know, a masculinity on screen. Like, there's an honesty to it that you don't see a lot. And I think you can play it. And I think he, you know, he likes to, you know, really, you know, be honest about that stuff. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. And it's that honesty yeah. that feels like oxygen, doesn't yeah. it? Right, it's yeah. It's like when... Yeah. when it, and um, he doesn't try to be cool. Right. He doesn't try to be tough. Right. He just tries to tell the truth. Yeah. Whether it's about a woman or about being a parent or whatever. He's just trying to hunt for it. And um, one of the things I really like about him, and I think that other actors would love this too, because he's allergic to plot. Well, that's good, though. You and know, and I, 
I hate plot. Yeah. It's such a. It's. I remember I, I got to do a play with Tom Stoppard, right? Yeah. And Stoppard once said this amazing thing that plot is this contract you have with the audience that the audience thinks they want it. Like when you think about your favorite movies or plays or things like that. A lot of times you can't even remember what happened at the end. Sure. Like, did Lawrence of Arabia win a big battle or no didn't idea. he? I don't yeah. know. But I love that movie. What'd yeah. you love about it? His eyes. Yeah. Remember when he's standing right. on top of the train and his thing? I just, we remember moments in that plot is this fake thing that we create that's like the illusion that dinner's coming. Yeah. Or that you, there's a, there's closure. That, that there's going to be closure because life never gives you any closure. And it does what? at the end. Well, un- unfortunately, <laughs> I, I know. I right. know. I hate that. But um, the point being is yeah. that what we like is the experiences. Yeah. And it doesn't really matter what happens. You know. Yeah, yeah. Whether it's boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy loses girl, boy meets. You know what? However, it all. It's not what happens. It's how it happens. Yes, yeah, the process. And, and Rick is just completely into how. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's a, that's a tremendous risk, and it, that's what's amazing that you know, outside of the device of boyhood, that you know, it got the attention it got because it was all about those feelings and about the process and about life and about you know the moments that have no bearing on on plot or anything else. It was like uh, it's almost like a meditation. I mean, like when you watch that movie, it's kind of mind fucking. What was your experience watching the full film after ten years of? Yeah, 12 years. It's bizarre to know that these characters are moving through this time in real time. It's 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 mind-blowing. To watch yourself age? Well, it just... <laughs> it, it, there's this lie we all tell each other all day, which is that time isn't happening. Right. It's happening. Yeah. We're all dying this second and I the know. next second. And I'm already nostalgic for when we started this interview. <laughs> uh, and, and, well, that's and, nice. And it's... It, it, yeah, but here's the thing. You know, when I was... Going down the rabbit hole thinking about Chet Baker, right? Yeah. And listening to Miles Davis yeah, yeah. and listening to all, all this stuff. I thought a lot about what they were going for with the whole idea of the discipline of jazz and the freedom of jazz, right. of what they're going for. And that's what watching Boyhood was like to me, is that there's this immense discipline in the architecture of what Rick's doing. I'm going to take the grid, the actual grid of high school, first grade, second grade, and I'm going to make a movie about this grid. But inside this grid is going to be this life just popping and popping. Yeah. In the, I read, the, it was a great, I found one, you know, at 3 a.m. online searching, I found some interview with Chet in Norway, like in 1983, when right. he had a cold. And, you know, you can find this stuff. And, and it was a radio interview. And he was talking about how sad he is when he watches jazz musicians pretend to improvise. Right. That they, they, they do, oh, here's my solo where I'll improvise. But it's the same. It's like they've written it. Yeah. And he says what he really loves to do is go throw himself out, throw himself out, and then find his way back into the melody. And just, right. And that it's this con- continual process of hurling yourself against the universe and trying to find some order. Yeah. Y- you know? Right. And and I felt, I really moved by that, because I feel like that's what we're all doing every day. Right. Like, okay, I'm going to, like, go get coffee today and see what happens. Yeah. You know? And... um but not everybody looks at that at it that way. A lot of people are just sort of like, "This is what I do every day, I and I hope the fuck that didn't that nothing weird happens." <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> but then there are those of us who are like, "I hope something weird happens." Cause, yeah, you know, I know. Because they're getting a little tired. Yeah, yeah. He has this thing that I think is what he's not the greatest singer in the world. He's not the greatest trumpet player. But when he plays, if you watch 
Almost Blue, where you listen to his yeah. last performance live at Tokyo. He plays Elvis Costello's Almost Blue. Yeah. It's magnificent, but you're not sure if he's going to live through the performance. Right. And you're not, and a lot of times when you listen to him sing, you think, is this good yeah. or is this bad? Yeah. But whatever the answer is, you're moved. It's real. It's, it's real and it's moved in. I put a line in. In the in the movie that was a line of his when somebody was saying, in the movie Dizzy says, "Hey, you got to stop this singing stuff," because people always said that to him, you know. Yeah. And he, he, but he says it's true. It may not be good, but there's no lies in it. Yeah. Right. There's no lies, and and Chet had a lot of problems and a lot of you know. Uh-huh. And, but when he was performing, it was without. It was void of lies. Yeah. And that's I think just the fragility of it all. Yeah. It's almost like he he doesn't pretend to even care. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. just here it is. Make of it what you will. Yeah, there was there's some moments in that movie around drugs and around his decisions and around, you know, his uh stubborn uh uh commitment to just being the way he was. Like you know, it's going to be sort of jarring for some people to to see you laying on the floor with a needle hanging out of your arm for a minute not knowing whether you're dead or alive. But the weird thing about that scene is that once you come out of it and you get the thing out of your arm that you know, she don't leave. That, see, like a lot of people don't understand that dynamic of sick relationships. That, like, you know, she was like going to stay there and and pull you out of that thing. That's crazy. And then he used the device of meeting on the set of a movie about Chet Baker. Well, and- that's actually it is a device, but that really happened, right? You know, like what was Dino De Laurentiis approached Chet after he'd done this jail stint in Italy. Would he play himself in a movie? And I think that. That's what got me on the hook of playing this part. The yeah. idea that I could actually play Chet Baker playing himself. Yeah. That, yeah. that seemed very bizarre. Well, there was another line that, like, there's these weird moments in the movie that sort of struck me as, as sort of strangely genuine, where, uh, <laughs> where, the, uh, where you're in the movie within a movie and you do dope for the first time. And then, like, there's a cut, and you go, like, wouldn't I be throwing up? I think I'd be throwing up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, this is so fake, man. <laughs> I sh- you- there should be puke everywhere. Right, right. Yeah. right. <laughs> was that the script? No. <laughs> that was but, I love it because what it does is it lets you, the audience, know, hey, look, biopics are fake. Right. Okay? Yeah. What we're trying to get is at some truth that's beyond, like, if you want to study Miles Davis, Dizzy Gillespie, you can. It's called Wikipedia. Yeah. You can find out exactly what happened. We're trying to tell you a story that might be relevant I mean, the dream is that it will be relevant larger than just yeah. the facts of an individual's yeah. life. Yeah. You know, I mean, Chet Baker is not, he didn't change music. He's not Miles Davis. He's right. an interesting human being right. who happened to be extremely talented. But, you know, is did he create bebop? No way. You know, nowhere near. He kind of got labeled with the California sound. And it was yeah, like he got, he's, you know, he, he got that thing and he sold a lot of records because he was doing playing at a high level and he was white and gorgeous and accessible and, yeah he was accessible because he didn't play as fast he was really interested in melody in and a if, way- you, if you listen to art pepper he was a horrible rat he'd throw anybody under the bus to stay out of jail <laughs> that's what art said about yeah <laughs> well have you read straight time yeah uh is it straight time or straight life straight uh, straight time it's right there it's straight life Oh, God, it's such a good Fucking book. Fucking insane. That guy, and that guy can write. Yeah, I know. There's passages in that book that are like I wonder, blistering. Yeah, uh, I wonder how much of it was Laurie, because Laurie's still alive, his wife, and they wrote really? it together. And it's what's funny about that book is it's by a sax player, a great sax player, but it's 350 pages about jail and dope yeah. and about 50 pages about That's sax. sax. Yeah, like, but you know, the pages on sax are so good. Yeah, well, he's, I, I used to read them on, on set, you yeah. know, because, you know, Hampton Hawes has another uh, 
Raise Up Off Me. I always get the titles. I've written, this is when you get old, you forget yeah, yeah, titles. I know, but I forget Raise Up Off Me. Hampton Hall, is, it's, it's like Straight Time. Um, so good. Is it Straight Life or Straight Time? I keep saying it's it. It's Straight um, Life. Straight I life. see it. Okay. Okay. It's good. on the I, second shelf down, right on the left. Next shelf over. Right there, second shelf down in the middle. Oh, yeah. No, that's Straight right. Life. You guys, this is a great library you have here. Yeah, uh, a lot of those are aspirations. Yeah, I know. I'll <laughs> take my library. <laughs> so let's let's move up a little bit. And you know, one thing is interesting is that you worked uh, on Midnight Clear. You worked with Pete Berg, who I actually was my roommate briefly in Culver City before he started acting. And no now he's like, way. yeah, it's bizarre. You know, if I had to say, okay, yeah. I did a Midnight, and I hope Pete Berg listens to this because yeah. I think he'll find it funny. But um, is I did a Midnight Clear. Wonderful. It was a really cool movie. Interesting it's, movie, yeah. Interesting movie about World War II. And it's with Gary Sinise, mm-hmm. one of the founders of Steppenwolf Theater Company, one of my, my heroes as an actor. Um, Kevin Dillon, great. Ari Gross, um, myself, Frank Whaley, and Pete Berg. Of all those guys, yeah. who I, we had a great time. I loved those guys. We yeah. had fun. If the one I would pick at least likely to become a Hollywood big shot director, it would definitely be Pete Burr. <laughs> I've picked him to be like a knucklehead. Uh, yeah. You know, he's such a jock. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's a you big, know? big I mean, personality. Real yeah. bully. <laughs> he is a bully. And if Pete Berg once um, threw me so hard across the room. I mean, I literally thought I was dead. I thought he broke my head. He put. He picked me up. We were, you know, it was one of those things where you're like, play fighting yeah and then yeah he kind of hit me across the jaw and i got pissed and then i punched him yeah and then he picked me up and threw me holy shit. across the room my head through wall i did i had to pay the some hotel fifteen thousand dollars oh because God. pete berg threw me through a wall and um but you know it's fascinating but he does that guy has life in him man. full of life dude he has life and yeah i'm so proud of and him. he's a good director yeah he's a good director and he's out there doing swinging his own yeah you know, playing by his own beat yeah so, like he's uh, like you know he's de- it's interesting that as a director you know he definitely has a style you know mm-hmm. I, I don't know what his relationship but is i just would have never thought would you have thought that why well, didn't I knew him briefly? Like I was living with Steve Brill, you know Brill. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. it was me and Brill went to college together, and we'd done some writing together in college. And I moved out here the first time in like uh, I don't know eight, late eighties, and uh, and I stayed with Brill in an apartment in Culver City. And then Pete was Brill's friend, and then you know Pete needed a place to live, so I got moved to the couch and eventually left. But at that time, Pete was working on a doc. Believe it, he was doing some acting, but he he wanted to make a documentary about Prince. Like he had this big vision. <laughs> Like so, he had a lot of things going on in his mind. He did. He always did. He yeah. always did. <laughs> you know. Let's talk about a Training Day a bit, um, because that like that movie is a pretty astounding movie, and the experience of working with Denzel and having to play off that. Yeah. What? What? How did you prepare for that thing, man? Denzel, to my mind, yeah, is you know one of the greatest actors of our era, um, and. That doesn't even take into consideration the fact that he's had to overcome issues of race and deal with it. I mean, just by I can speak to how hard it is to be a dramatic actor. Yeah. All right. And I I don't have any obstacles. I mean, studios don't want to make dramas. And this guy is a world class movie star and a world class actor. Right. Right. I mean, it's really only the Brits that do that. Yeah. You know, where you can be a star and also like a a very serious actor artist, I would say. And Denzel is, you know, it's a it's a hurricane, it's a thunderstorm. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a trying to <laughs> keep your composure um, and create with him. Yeah, 
you know, is is hard because he's a real powerful force. I, I studied his movies before I did Training Day because I, I, I just love his acting. Yeah, right? I just it's love great. And, but I really noticed that he kind of blew everybody off the screen that right. he worked with, except Gene Hackman. <laughs> well, Gene's amazing. Yeah. So I, was, I watched he and Gene Hackman, and I was like, <laughs> okay, the trick is it's clear that Gene is not playing Denzel's game and Denzel's not playing Gene's game. And I just challenged myself. <laughs> like, you're watching game footage. <laughs> That's how I felt like. I, I watched that movie and I thought to myself, all right, here's the trick, man. I have got to not care if this guy likes me. You got a Gene Hackman it. Yeah. I, I, I just, I don't want to go to the Laker game with him. I don't want to go out to dinner. I don't want to be best friends. I'm sure he's got a best friend. I got a best friend. It's fine. I'm yeah. just going to do my job. This guy, and he worked hard to get me that part. Yeah. So I knew that, and I just put that in my hat, and I just tried to do, I just come on and not care if he liked what I was doing or not. Right. Um, because that's the trick with, the, the, the trap with other actors often is it. If you're doing what they want you to do, what you're doing is making it easy for them. Yeah. And if you're making it easy for them, what you're doing is decreasing sparks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, you're actually, it's like um, people say this idea about like run lines with your scene partner. I hate doing that because I don't want them, I don't want to get in like some habitual uh, reheated performance, Uh you know, like where I want to have an actual creative act that you're witnessing. Right. And and that's going to be interesting to watch. So- this idea that if you're making your scene partner happy that you're doing a good job, I, I don't think so. I, I think that you you want to have conflict. Yeah. And you, you have to stand up for the integrity of your person, and they have to do that. And if the thing is written well, sparks will fly. Right. So that was my work on that movie. Wow. Was simply to try to... Hold uh, your own. Yeah, and I tried to take the... Con- you know, I'd done this movie Tape with Linkletter, and I'd done Hamlet with Michael Amareta, these two weird indie movies that year that I had a lot... Because there was no stress, there was no budget, they were low-level movies, I, I felt my confidence rising. Yeah. And I, because I didn't feel people judging me, and I felt... Right. And I cha- I tried to play a trick on myself. I just tried to imagine that I was on set in one of those movies. And and it, Denzel has an amazing quality. You remember your senior year of high school, like after, you know, like the last month of you're walking through the halls, and you don't give a shit what anybody thinks about yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, a great yeah. feeling, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, that's how Denzel walks through life. <laughs> Right, right. And and I just tried to emulate it in my own way. Right, right. You know, and I feel like, okay, well, on the set of tape, I didn't care what anybody thought about me. Yeah. You know, and yeah. on the set, I, I was in charge. So I'll be in charge here. Yeah. I'll let it go <laughs> and see how it goes. Now, obviously, I'm not in charge, but at least I'll trick myself into having the confidence that I am. That's, it was good, right? You had yeah. a good time? I'm really proud of the film. Yeah, it's great. You know, it's hard to do. It's hard to make a mainstream Hollywood movie that, also is a good movie yeah yeah mm-hmm. no i i can't not watch it i'll tell you that and uh and i loved it i loved it there's that scene where like where he he just tells you that you know you've got alcohol in your system you got <laughs> yeah. angel dust and just, <laughs> you're just fucked you think this is you think this is checkers this is chess <laughs> um and uh you know i just worked with denzel and antoine again we just did a remake of the magnificent seven. Oh, so I, I saw s- that on the imdb that sounds fucking amazing yeah it should be fun it's all in the can it's done well, they're cutting it now, yeah. And how Putting was the, the experience? Movie. Well, it was a real swashbuckling Western. I mean, we were sweating. I mean, a it lot was, of you. It was a lot of us. It was a lot of horses. D'Onofrio, too, right? D'Onofrio, He's Chris great Pratt. Actor, right? D'Onofrio's a great actor. Yeah, Jesus, yeah. man. So I had all these guys on set. You know, those are two of my favorite all-time actors, D'Onofrio and, and Denzel. And, uh, yeah. And, um, and, 
Antoine trying to manage all of our personalities. Right. I mean, you can be sure that it was, you know, and it's 104, you know, and we're all dressed in wool and with loaded shotguns. And Where are you shooting? We're at Louisiana and oh Santa Fe. Oh, my God. Santa Fe's nice. Santa Fe's nice, yeah. I grew up in New Mexico. So uh, now working with Lumet on the last that uh, movie on B, before the, the what is the Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. What what'd you take from that experience of, of dealing with that guy? Because he's a real, he's an actor's director, isn't he? Sydney, he was... It was like it's words fail. Uh, yeah, I was I was in his last film. He's eighty three years old. That film is the work of a young man. That film is yeah. blisters with rage. It's angry. It's weird. Um, he is such a great storyteller. He's always in service of the emotion, mm-hmm. not himself. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of directors they just want you to notice them. Mm-hmm. He disappears, and I have to say, if you take if if. I could leave this interview with any one thing is that everybody needs to watch Network again. Again. It's and with with the election that we're under right now, you cannot believe how prescient and yeah. relevant that film is. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature. <laughs> it's an incredible film. Oh yeah. And Sydney was a great artist and getting to work with Phil and Marissa on a real New York movie with Sidney Lamette and the last days of his life was so exciting. And um he uh I'll tell, I'll tell you one great story about him. Phil and I went to him because we found out that he, in rehearsal, we found out that he was going to shoot it on digital video. Right. And we were so upset. We're like, he's a film guy. So yeah. he's like, when we went to Sydney and we said, hey, man, you know, let's, let's shoot this on film, man. Like all, like your other films, you know, like, uh, don't you want it to look like Dog Day Afternoon, you know? And, and, and Sydney's like, what about Dog Day Afternoon? Did you like the way it looked? Oh, you know, it's so raw and real. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You, and you like that? Yeah, you know, and, 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 he, and he goes, what you're saying is, you want it to look kind of vintage, yeah. cool, right? And we're like, yeah. yeah. Wait 20 years. It will. <laughs> <laughs> I made Dog Day as cheaply and frugally as possible, just like I'm going to make this film. And, and and you trust me, live a little while, wait 20 years, it's going to look great. It's going to be so retro, you won't even believe it. That's hilarious. And, uh, and you know, of course, he's right. They, they sure. just Linkletter just screened Before the Devil Knows Your Dead as kind of a 10-year anniversary for the Austin Film Society. And we watched it again. And sure enough, it looks badass and old school. It looks like a vintage LP, you know? Right, right. That's hilarious. So what are you doing uh, stage-wise? you doing any of that? I'm trying to work together a production of Night of the Iguana, to be honest with you. Oh, really? You know, Tennessee's, yeah. You know, it's a great, great play, and um, it hasn't been done in New York in about 25 years, so I'm trying big to- Big cast, right? Yeah, pretty big. Yeah, so when you when you start to put together- I've been I've recently been uh, seeing plays because, um, uh, you know, Scott Rudin has been sort of championing plays, and he's, he's sort of- Got me to interview Annie Baker, oh, cool. and he's going to have me interview. What's the guy's name? Stephen Karam? Is that the guy's mm-hmm. name who did the Humans? Mm-hmm. So I'm like sort of re-engaged a bit, or maybe for the first time in my life, engaged with your know, current theater. New York theater. Have you seen Hamilton? No, I got to see. Well, it. You got to see that. I, it's really been great to go back to the theater and and see quality stuff. It's it's. I forget well, any time I go, I'm I'm amazed like the it, visceral. You get beyond technology. Yeah, yeah. It's so exciting, you know. I mean, it's like it's for. Five minutes, people aren't on their phones. They're not they're like you. Actually, have to be in a room and breathe the same air with another people, person, right? And be together and laugh together. I, when somebody comes up to me and they, it happened to me just the other day. Um, somebody said, "I saw you in." Um, oh yeah, they saw me in Costa Utopia. They said, and it was, and they remembered 
that there was a glitch with one of my props that yeah. this prop was sure. this thing was broken and then and i remember i remember that day i remember that that actual specific performance whereas if you sure. come up to say you like training day it's meaningful to me but i wasn't in the room when you right. watched it right right and you see me in a play it means we were there together we, yeah you know yeah. somebody we shared to me, that moment we and, shared that and moment you remember the yeah. emotion of it i remember it's somebody i was doing um uh, Henry the Fourth with Kevin Klein, right? Yeah. And there's an amazing moment, which is that I had to be dead, and Kevin Klein was giving this beautiful soliloquy above yeah. me. Yeah. And and somebody's cell phone went off, yeah. right? And you know, and he jumped a couple acts and said, "Is that the chimes of midnight? <laughs> we have heard the sounds of chimes." And everybody laughed. The problem is, I laughed too, right. but I was supposed to be dead. And so my armor is just shaking as I'm laughing, and and it's kind of. And this person came up to me on the subway, where yeah. it was like, and they were like, "I was there," and I, yeah. and we both started laughing about that right. moment. It's great. And and that's theater. And when and look, when you go see a great play, a real look, there's bad stuff too. Yeah. But when you see a visceral, alive work of art, and it's happening right in front of you and it only it's only going to happen those few times right you're one of only a handful of people that'll see it that's it's like, right it's like seeing neil young at a tiny hundred seat house when he was not even supposed to go on right, right. he was just having a beer and he yeah. came up and i saw it yeah you know a great theater yeah. show is like that yeah yeah i mean when i, I saw previews of lynn manuel doing this hamilton i saw it and i literally didn't want to go right, right. It, was, it was when it was first in previews and my wife was like you gotta go we're going with this couple and I'm right like, oh, it's a musical it's a me i hate musicals yeah. i said this thing starts and you felt like something was wrong. Like, it's not supposed to be this interesting. Yeah, yeah. Like, you can't, like, they they must not really be saying the lines. Right. You know, like, kind of the feeling you had where you, you, you've you noted, like, two moments in the Chet Baker movie right. that really were based out of improv. Like, you right. feel that reverberation yeah, sure, of, like, sure. something, this is illegal right, shit yeah, I'm yeah, smoking yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the theater can do that. Theater can do it like nothing else. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. Like, even, like, I had this conversation with somebody the other night. God, I don't go to opera, and I don't go to a lot of musicals, but every time I go to a musical, just, if there's more than three people singing anywhere, I, I'm going to cry. I don't yeah. even know why. But, like, with opera, like, I was talking to someone about opera. I've been to maybe two in my life, and what people don't realize about opera is that it's just people. It's, it's not amplified. You get this idea that it's a spectacle, but when you get there, it's like you can hear the wood in the instruments. You can hear you can them hear... step onto the stage it's crazy. and then you hear their voice. I know. And I saw I saw Gary Sinise's production of True West. Uh, was it True West he did? Yeah. Right? On Broadway? That's the. It was off-Broadway, um, and that's the production that made me want to be an actor. Really? Yeah, both. That production changed my life. Because like the, the night I saw it, you know that weird scene? It wasn't True West. No, that, that was the Cherry Lane where he was yeah, with, yeah, yeah. with uh, was it Which Daniel one? Stern or, or maybe with played, John Malkovich? Oh, he played with Malkovich, right. No, the one he directed, uh, Barry Child. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I saw Sinise directed, he directed Barry Child and there's that scene where the guy comes in at the end with, with the, the corn, corn. Mm-hmm. and the night I was there, one ear of corn just started rolling down the stage <laughs> towards the audience, and there was no stopping it. And I was like, "This is amazing! He's being upstaged by the corn." I know, but it, the it was, Pulitzer Prize is <laughs> for naught. The corn is rolling. Exactly. I was in that production. You were? Yeah. Why don't I remember yeah. that? Because I probably wasn't in it when you saw it. I did the original production in Chicago. No, I saw uh, it in New, New York. York. Yeah, on Broadway. They moved it to Broadway, and I couldn't come with it. But that was one of the, that that production. Um, I loved know, it. Oh, it's phenomenal. Gary's one of the great theater directors of our time. What's that guy that played the, that character? The, he's a Terry Chicago- Kinney. Wow, what an actor. Yeah. He's How's he doing? Fun. He's amazing. I haven't seen him lately. Oh, he's around all the time. He directs a lot of great theater. He's a, he's an incredible guy. Like, I remember really realizing that he was an actor, and that, that movie was okay, but The, the Firm? Mm-hmm. Remember the firm? Yeah, with he's Tom good. In it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, where he's just sitting out there in the sprinklers. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. His leg. Yeah, <laughs> you're like, holy shit. You remember that image your whole life, don't right, you? Right, you do. I know. There's uh, a lot of movies uh, like that. All right, well, I got to let you go because. All right, man. That was great.
thank you for coming. I had a great time. Thanks, buddy. Well, that was good. That was I love that. Did you? He lit up about theater at the end. Lit up. Good guy. It was nice to talk to him. Decent fellow. Good stories. Hope you enjoyed that. Go to WTFPod.com. See who's been on the show. If you're curious, you can get hooked up with Powell.fm for the archive. You can email. You can get on the mailing list. Okay. Have some, get some justcoffee.coop. You can do whatever you got to do. Should I play some guitar? I didn't prepare anything.